0: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please. Thank you, everyone. Please sit. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into this episode, though, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Brendan Kumarasamy. What a truly delightful gentleman, and the response to this episode was truly immense. If you haven't had a chance to check out MasterTalk, you can find the link to, in the show notes for that episode, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to Brendan's interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. All right, so welcome to episode 122. We have a very powerful episode for you today, and I do not use that word lightly. We have on the show the chief Nazi hunter for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. Dr. Zuroff took a brief break from his incredibly important work to speak with me about how he got involved in hunting down the perpetrators of the most evil act in the history of mankind, the Holocaust. Plus, discusses such things as the role in foreign countries knowingly hiding Nazis, and he discusses his work against Holocaust distortion. I'm going to be flat out honest with you. This is one of the most important interviews I've ever done in the history of the Derek Duval show, and I hope you find our conversation to be as powerful as I did. So let's get Dr. Zuroff out here. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in from Jerusalem in Israel, the chief Nazi hunter for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. Good morning, hello, and welcome to the Derek DeVall Show. How is the weather in Jerusalem today?
2: Today, thank God, it's quite nice, a little bit cold, but the last two days we had uh, very heavy rains. Really? On the other hand, people it hadn't rained in weeks so people were hoping for rain
1: <laughs> what's the what is the average climate there
2: the average climate in the summer it's in the 80s 90s in the winter it's at 32 35 30 hmm. usually snows once a year
1: if at <laughs> all nice so i start my interviews off the same way and that is how has it been for you to navigate the covid19 world up to this point
2: Well, obviously, it posed certain challenges. As a matter of fact, we were involved in a uh, very interesting investigation. uh, And we were missing one piece of the puzzle. And the place that we hoped to be able to find that piece was actually in the COVID capital of Lithuania. So we couldn't, uh, we weren't able to complete the puzzle, unfortunately. Hmm. So
1: every journey has a beginning. Now, I understand you were born in New York a few years after the end of the Second World War. What was it like growing up there during that period of history?
2: Well, we believed that America was the greatest country in the world. I don't know if that's still true anymore. (laughs) I had a very pleasant childhood, a lot of emphasis on sports, a lot of emphasis on school. I went to a Jewish religious school in elementary school and high school. My father was actually the principal of Yeshiva High School at an Orthodox uh, High School. And uh, we devoted a lot of time to sports, especially basketball. And uh, my fantasy growing up was not uh, to be a Nazi hunter, but to be the first Orthodox Jew to play in the NBA.
1: Nice. Who's your favorite team, just out of curiosity?
2: Brooklyn Nets, of course.
1: Ah, right. Okay. (laughs) So you did attend yeah, Yusufa University. What was it like attending there in the late 60s?
2: First of all, it was a exciting experience because this was a time of great ferment, political ferment, both in general uh, in, in the world and in Israel, because we're talking about the six day war. We're talking about basically a, a fear that Israel would be defeated, that Israel would be invaded, Israel would be eliminated. And instead of that, that terrible would be disaster, The result was just the opposite. Israel regained the heartland of the Jewish people, returned to Jerusalem. It was a very exciting, tremendous enthusiasm for Israel in the Jewish world. And at the same time, we faced issues like Vietnam, Cambodia, and and things of that sort also.
1: So my question to you is, you, you, you attended the Institute of Contemporary Jewry in the Hebrew University. How exactly, what exactly does holocaust studies encompass is it just basically a study of that period of time or is it general categories
2: well uh, the institute of contemporary jewry was established uh to teach about jewish history demography and sociology in the 20th century and you had to choose a specialization so i chose to study the holocaust because when i got there I realized that there was absolutely nothing practical about these studies. The plan was to try and produce scholars who would deal with these subjects. So the thing, if I figured, if I have to spend what I thought was going to be three years, and turned out to be five years to get a second degree, I may as well choose the subject that interested me most intellectually, which was how on earth did the Holocaust happen, and. Also because of the fact that I had to learn a foreign language, and it was much easier to study German, which is in Latin letters, than Russian, which is in Cyrillic. And I'd have to learn a new alphabet and, you know, a new language. And they were already, the first Jews were, were leaving the Soviet Union, and quite a few of them were, were interested in studying their own history. So I couldn't compete with them. It was no, no contest. But in any event, but really the subject that I was fascinated by and intrigued by, I should say, was the Holocaust.
1: This may be a sensitive question to ask, but I'll I'll ask anyway, is did you have any family or anything that was involved in that time?
2: Well, I'm actually named for uh, my mother's uncle who was murdered in the Holocaust. But to be honest, uh, there wasn't very much discussion of that issue. My family had no idea how and when he was killed. Things that I later found out, I was able to find out. And uh, my father's family, apparently there were some people, but my father didn't know anything about it. Had He, he wasn't very interested in, in his family's past, as opposed to my mother's family, where, where I knew almost everything about them, where they lived, where they emigrated to. I mean, my, my grandfather was one of six brothers five of whom were able to leave Eastern Europe before the Holocaust. And one was, my grandfather got him a visa to America, according to this sort of urban legend, but he felt that it it was not the right place for a very religious Jew to come. And unfortunately he, his wife, and his two boys were murdered. That's
1: terrible. So what was the process of you coming to work for the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles? (laughs)
2: And <laughs> the process. <laughs> um, okay, so I was studying for an MA. I got an MA. I got approval for a doctoral um, topic about efforts from United States, American Jewish organizations to try and save Jews during the Holocaust. I had to go to the States. I'd already uh, made Aliyah. That means I had already immigrated to Israel in 1970. After spending a year as a junior in college in Israel... And falling in love with Israel, which wasn't very hard in those days. There was tremendous enthusiasm for Israel, and people from all over the world, young people all over the world, were coming to Israel to, to settle. In any event, I uh, was looking for a position which would allow me to go to the States for a while and at the same time collect the information that I needed, documents that I needed for my thesis. So the San Rizzo Center just opened up a year previously, 1977. They were looking for an academic director. And I had uh, already had a, um, a master's in Holocaust studies, which was relatively rare in those days. Today, a lot of people have them. Um, and the people who w- were running the Sarah Wiesendorf Center were actually Orthodox Jews. And the fact that I was Orthodox, or I am still Orthodox, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think was uh, made it comfortable for them to offer me the job, so that's how I got to the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Initially, it was only for two years, from seventy-eight to eighty. But during that time, I met Simon Wiesenthal, and to be honest, I had never, I hadn't read his books. I wasn't interested in the topic. His story was very intriguing, very interesting, and in his life. And he visited the United States several times. I actually met him in Israel before I went to the United States. He was very upset that my German wasn't up to par. He realized that I knew the subject inside out. So that was, you know, some sort of consolation for him. (laughs) And then I met him again when he came to L.A. I remember there was a benefit for the Simon Riesendorf Center for the premiere, The Boys from Brazil, the movie, The Boys from Brazil. And Simon Riesendorf came and I learned more about his life, more about his persona. And then, of course, was during that period, the United States began Uh, prosecuting Nazi war criminals who came uh, to the United States posing as innocent immigrants, when in effect they were Nazi collaborators. After those two years, I convinced the Office of Special Investigations in Washington, which was the office especially established to prosecute these Nazis, that they needed someone in Israel. And I volunteered in quotation marks to take that job on. And I worked for them for six years until what happened was that I was on assignment for the Justice Department for the what they call the OSI, Office of Special Investigations, and I by accident discovered a way to identify the post-war immigration of thousands of Nazi war criminals who emigrated to Anglo-Saxon countries. So at that point in time Only the United States had made a decision to put these people on trial. I was working for that office, but Canada was investigating, Australia was investigating, England and New Zealand ostensibly. I say ostensibly, didn't know that they had a problem. But if I'm working for the Americans, I couldn't do anything to turn that information that I had discovered into hot material, so to speak, and something that could turn the tide and make sure that these countries would not walk away from the from the issue and just ignore it. So I contacted my former colleagues in the Wiesendorf Center. I said, listen, you don't have an office in Jerusalem. Every self-respecting Jewish defense agency needs an office in Jerusalem. I have the ability now to flood these countries with the names of suspects. Let's set up an office. Let's start. And that's exactly how I went back. And I, I've been there ever since. I've been here in Jerusalem ever since.
1: I want to ask you real quick about uh, what you said about Nazis living in the United States post-war. And who was the one name that came across your desk that you remember above all others and why?
2: Listen, you have to understand that there are three different categories of Nazi war criminals who came to the United States. One was about 150 scientists, technicians, and engineers who were working on the V2 rockets. That was Hitler's secret weapon. They, they were originally produced in a base on the Baltic Sea, a place called Punamunda. Then the Allies found out that that was where they were being manufactured. So they started bombing the, the, the base and the Nazis moved the, the building, the place where these uh, rockets were, were created, were produced to the Harts Mountains in Eastern Germany and Thuringia, deep in caves where they couldn't be bombed out of existence. But they used concentration camp laborers to work on this project, and they worked them basically worked them to death. So in other words, you're talking about a project that was full of, you know, these people were, were war criminals, Nazi collaborators whose weapons led to the death of thousands and people who mistreated the workers who actually produced these things. So, you could say that on the day of the armistice, the day the war in Europe was was over, the Cold War began. And the United States was afraid that these people would fall into the hands of the Russians. So there was something called Operation Paperclip. In those days, there were no databases. So any person, they, the, the refugee records were, were on microfilms, 16 million names. And anyone who was a, an object or a person with, knowledge and expertise would have a paper clip put on his index card and those are the people whom the american government went after to bring to the united states knowingly they were brought to two places one to huntsville alabama for the american ballistic missiles project and the others went to the houston to the space program but that's only a small number because the estimate of nazis who came nazi criminals who came to the united states is ten thousand. so there was a small group Dozens of people, a couple dozen, who the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of the CIA, wanted to train to serve as spies behind the Iron Curtain. Now, what you have to understand is the overwhelming majority of the Nazi war criminals and collaborators who came to the United States were not Germans and Austrians. They were Lithuanians, Latvians, Ukrainians, Estonians, uh, Belarusians, Croatians, Romanians, Hungarians, Poles. So those were people who were chosen. A couple of them were handpicked. Not that many to uh, to be parachuted back behind the Iron Curtain as service spies. But the overwhelming majority of the of the people, Nazis collaborators, who came to the United States, were non-Germans who slipped through the cracks because the people who were vetting the immigration applications were not aware of the incredibly important role played by Nazi collaborators from other countries. And I'm talking about what is commonly now referred to as the Holocaust by bullets. A million and a half people, including, and many, many children were, were killed by shooting in, in the East. And the people who carried out those operations were in most cases, actually locals. So and they, of course, knew that if they, the Russians got their hands on them, they'd either be executed or sent to the gulags for many years. So they ran away and uh, they were able to fool the immigration authorities.
1: Argentina seemed to be a safe haven for the Nazi hierarchy who escaped, you know, post-war Europe. In your opinion, why has Argentina never been brought to task for knowingly hiding these individuals?
2: Okay, so first of all, it's hard to bring to task a country. <laughs> you don't put a country on trial. <laughs> and the people who should have been put on trial were, of course, Juan Peron and the members of his government. But the question is, why was Argentina such a safe haven for the Nazis? So, first of all, there were already there was a German community in Argentina which supported the Nazis. And in Argentina, you know, there are very often military coups, governments are changing, dictators have to run. So there's always an open door policy in the eyes of the South Americans. And it's not only Argentina, of course, there were Nazis who went to Brazil, the Nazis went to, Europe, to Paraguay, to Chile, to Bolivia. So in, in, in the eyes of these South American regimes, when you always need a place to run to, they like to keep an open door policy. And in their eyes, these people were not war criminals. They were the people who lost the war. That's why they had to run. Had they won the war, they wouldn't have had to run.
1: So for the most part, when the criminals are found, are they quick to deny any wrongdoing or for the most part, do they admit their role?
2: Well, from my experience, and I'm dealing with this issue 42 years already, there's never been a case of a Nazi war criminal who ever expressed genuine regret or remorse. Not one. it's crazy. So I always say, you know, someone today, many of them are elderly people, they're being brought to jail at an elderly age. So there, there's something that I call misplaced sympathy syndrome. In other words, instead of sympathizing with the victims, their victims, some of whom are older than they are today. You have to remember, these people committed their crimes when they were young, strong. And what did they do with all that energy and strength that they had? They devoted it to the mass murder of innocent civilians who were the enemies of the Reich, in quotation marks, whose only crime was to be a Jew, to be homosexual, to be mentally ill, handicapped, etc. Most people think that if if a German refused to shoot Jews, he himself would be shot or she uh, would be shot. There's no documented case of a single German who refused to kill Jews and was, was executed, let alone executed, even, even, you know, very seriously punished. We know now that many commanders in many cases told people before the shootings, if you can't stomach this, if you don't want to do this, we'll send you somewhere else. We'll send you to a different task. And that puts the whole thing in a very different light. If people think that you're going to be killed if you don't shoot Jews, then obviously you have to do it so you won't be killed.
1: How many tips come across your desk that end up being dead ends?
2: About ninety-eight percent. Really, ninety-eight percent of the tips. So I'll tell you a couple of things. One is that the only place from which we get tips and questions about family members is Germany. In other words, I've hunted Nazis. Throughout Europe, and not only in Europe, in Australia, in Canada, in Great Britain, in New Zealand, South America, I have never gotten a tip from a family member except for Germany. That's one. Number two, I often, most of the tips are totally worthless. And I'll give you two examples, which on a certain level are amusing, but it's not funny, okay? So about a couple of years ago, I got an email from someone in Germany who tells me the following. When I was backpacking in Peru near the Amazon in a place whose name I don't remember. okay, he doesn't remember the name of the place. All the locals were talking about the German. He must be a Nazi. (laughs) Okay, so what am I supposed to do? This is 40 years after he was there. He doesn't remember the name of the place. So what do I do? Get on my private jet and try and find them? Then there's another thing that happens actually more frequently than you would imagine. And it's always from the United States. It begins like this. Someone calls our office. Is this the Wiesenthal Center? Yes. Are you still hunting Nazis? Yes. In some cases, are you still offering money for information? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I want to tell you that last week, I had this terrible fight with my 92-year-old neighbor. He's German. He must be a Nazi.
1: One question that I find no one has ever asked you is, with your extensive background and knowledge of the horrors of the Holocaust, how do you maintain your positive mental health? Because, I mean, obviously, being submitted to that all the time, I must do a number on what's going on upstairs.
2: First of all, if I were a child of survivors, it would have been much harder. And I'm not, both my parents were born in America. So that's one thing. I think in a certain sense, if I think about my life, uh, the fact that I was almost killed in the Israeli army was more difficult for me than than doing this. Hmm. Because I know that I'm doing the right thing and someone has to do it. And it's very important because we can't bring, unfortunately, unfortunately, we can't bring any of the victims back to life. But at least we can hold the people who turn them, innocent people, uh, into victims, at least we can hold them accountable, which is very important.
1: I want to talk about your book, Operation Last Chance, One Man's Quest to Bring Nazi Criminals to Justice. We just had a 97-year-old woman convicted of being an accessory to over 10,000 murders at a concentration camp. In your book, you make a strong case for locating and bringing these monsters to justice. Were you surprised with the response of the book and how fruitful was it? capturing any Nazi war criminals?
2: I think the response to the book was quite positive, but it's 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 basically the way you described it. In other words, it's a plea for justice, basically. So uh, the book came out in nine different languages. It came out in countries where I had been active, a country like Hungary, for example. Where I found quite a few in Nazi war criminals. In, in uh, Romania, in, in Finland. Finland was a different story, but... Um, and uh, in Poland, uh, so it got a lot of uh, it got a lot of attention, and um, it 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 helps. In other words, it helps bring the message to, to thousands and thousands of people and create public opinion that supports the prosecution of these Nazis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I gone after so many different people. I've gone after the people who are super intelligent and total dopes, religious. Atheists, the most educated, the least educated. So I've had really an incredible cross-section of humanity. And that's why the this whole problem of this remorse and regret is such an important issue. In other words, because the people, as I told you, that I met and that I were involved in, never expressed any regret, never expressed any empathy. By the way, there's a very interesting new documentary called Final Account done by a British uh, director called Luke Holland, who passed away just as he was finishing this movie. He interviewed, I would assume, dozens, hundreds of people who during World War II were of military age and served either in the SS or they served in the Wehrmacht or in some sort of you know, military connection. And here and there, a few of them said that they understood that the Third Reich was a mistake. Okay. But not a single one expressed any empathy for the victims. Not one, even those people who said the third act was a mistake. It was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. Now, I didn't see all the interviews that Lou Collins did. Of course, I only saw the ones in the actual movie. But it was it was pathetic. I'm telling you, on a certain level, it was so disheartening, it really. That
1: okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here. But we will be right back with the conclusion of this powerful interview with Dr. Efron Zuroff. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back.
0: This is Country Boy for One
1: My Black History, and if you listen to my podcast, this is some of the things that you will enjoy. The term Jim Crow derives from early 19th century minstrel shows. It was a popular form of entertainment, which is the predecessor to Vaudeville. The shows consisted of a primarily white song and dance performer, crudely mimicking African-Americans for the enjoyment of white audiences. One of the earliest and most famous was Thomas Daddy Rice, who devised a strutting, dancing character supposedly mimicking a prancing crow. And the character became known
2: as Jim Crow. And
1: if this is the type of content that you enjoy, you can find more content like this at OneMicHistory.com. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things?
0: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker,
1: and author
2: of Untold Teaching Truths.
1: I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It
0: is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on, Warriors. We've got this. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow available on all major streaming platforms and you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com my heart heart on the water. Me
1: duval nation derek and mindy duval here to talk about jerky pro the standard in premium beef jerky products.
2: The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always
1: the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold.
2: With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or, if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate.
1: Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky.
0: Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy Hey there, this is Frankie Ray and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show My latest single, Over Now is available on all streaming platforms. Hope you like it
1: You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 122 of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the chief Nazi hunter for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. So based on Operation Last Chance, which was published in 2011, in your opinion, what would be a conservative estimate as to how many Nazi criminals are probably still left alive today that haven't been brought to justice?
2: Well, if you accept my definition of a Nazi war criminal, that means anyone who in the service of the Third Reich or its allies, persecuted people because of in other words, persecuted civilians because of their origin, because of their beliefs, etc. I would say that there still are quite a few hundreds spread out all over the world because you know you're talking about something that took place in every single country in Europe, with the exception of Great Britain, Soviet Union, and the six neutrals. So you had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. So there were many people who were brought to justice, especially in the immediate aftermath of the war. But after that, the Allies lost their interest, and every so often there was there was no interest. Let's say when they discovered that Nazis had come to America, when they discovered Nazis in Canada, in Australia, in England, New Zealand, etc. And then when the Soviet Union broke up, all of a sudden there's free access to witnesses and to documents. Because in the old days, Soviet, you, you gave the Soviets a name of a suspect. They gave you what they wanted you to see. So, And I'm convinced that they used the fact that these people were discovered to try and get them to be spies for the the Soviet Union, and and in that way, they promised them that they wouldn't be exposed.
1: Uh, One question I want to ask that just came to my head real fast is, during the liberation of the camps, some camps were documented that they brought people from surrounding villages and towns into the camps to help remove bodies. What do you say to those people? Was it basically a head in the sand? Was it people afraid of the government? Or was it just basically people just, I don't care?
2: All of the above. All of the above. You know what? I have to tell you one story from the book, from the book about Lithuania. Every place that we went to, we went to mostly to small villages, okay? If we saw someone who was old enough to have lived through the war, we stopped to interview them. So I saw a woman leaving a grocery store. And I said to Ruta, my co-author, I don't speak Lithuanian, to to ask her what she remembers from the war. So she told the following story. I'll relate it very briefly. She said that she was about eight years old in 1941 when the decrees against the Jews began and the murders began. And She she was friendly with a Jewish girl, also eight years old, from a, a neighboring family. And when the decrees against the Jews began, it seemed clear that there was going to be serious trouble. There was a discussion, a very intense discussion in her home, whether or not they could save her friend, her eight-year-old girlfriend. So I said to her, well, you know, you must have been afraid of the Germans. She said, no, we were afraid of our neighbors. She began crying. It was heartbreaking, I'm telling you. It was like the first time she could tell it to someone who empathized with her and her desire to save that child. And that says it all in a certain sense. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: So there has to been a renewed campaign of, of anti-Semitism in the last few months with people even taking up a stance of Holocaust denial. Being in your position, how do you deal with such people and that complete insanity?
2: Okay. So we never publicly uh, debate Holocaust deniers. We don't give them the, the legitimacy to, to to debate them. I am very, very involved in the fight against what we call Holocaust distortion. In other words, Holocaust distortion is very prevalent in Eastern Europe, where they don't deny that the Holocaust took place, took place in their backyard, but they changed the narrative. The narrative is the Nazis came, they killed our Jews, boo terrible tragedy. But in Eastern Europe, the local collaborators played an incredibly significant role in the mass murders. So this is this is what we're fighting against. And my book, um, "Our People: Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust," is basically a, a refutation of all these lies of the Lithuanian government. And it's a, it's an issue of great uh, concern. It's very dangerous. It undermines Holocaust research, Holocaust memory, Holocaust commemoration, Holocaust education. So that that's the fight now. So in other words, it's clear that the. Era of the trials of the Nazis are coming to an end. There are still five investigations going on in Germany, which we will help the prosecution find survivors. But uh, the real challenge is now to fight that fight. So I don't know. I I I haven't been very popular in places like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Croatia, uh, places like that. But uh, the fight goes on. This is uh, you know something that uh, I feel very strongly about. And uh, is worthy of our attention, worthy of our effort, and um, mm. you know deserves deserves the necessary attention. I would say
1: it's twenty twenty two. Would you say that Germany has been pretty, you know, trying to reconcile its horrible past and that being very cooperative with bringing these Nazi criminals to trial? I
2: would divide it into two. Germany has done a good job in educating about the Holocaust. But when it came to justice, they've done a horrible job, absolutely horrible. And I'll give you some statistics. Uh, The West German government took over the judiciary, the justice system, only in 1949. That's when the occupation by the Allies ended. From 1949 to 1985, there were 200,000 investigations of Nazis in Western Germany, West Germany, there were 120,000 indictments, less than 7,000 people were convicted and punished. So it speaks for itself. And I'll give you another fact. It's very, very interesting. Until 2008, 2009, in Germany, to prosecute a Nazi war criminal, you had to prove that the, the suspect had committed a specific crime against a specific victim, and was motivated by racial hatred. That's impossible to prove. And they purposely did it because they wanted to limit the number of people who would be brought to justice. So in Nuremberg, at the Nuremberg trials, new categories of criminality were created that better reflected the reality of what happened in World War II. Crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, crimes against, you know, uh Uh, Other crimes, instead of using them, they used a Prussian edict from 1870 on murder to bring these people to justice. But in in 2009, there was a tremendous, very dramatic change in the prosecution policy because what happened was that the plotters of 9-11, and this is really an interesting story, 9-11 is tied to Holocaust justice the is of 9-11, with the exception of Atta, who flew one of the planes, he was a suicide bomber, they lived in Hamburg, and the Germans caught them, arrested them, and wanted to prosecute them. So what they did was they prosecuted them for accessory to murder, not for murder because they hadn't pulled the trigger directly, right? So it's accessory to murder. They were all convicted. Two lawyers who were working in the central office for the clarification of Nazi war crimes Thomas Walter and Kirsten Getze went to their boss, Kirchrim, and said, Why don't we do the same with death camp guards? Anyone who worked in a death camp was part of the mechanism of mass murder. So the first case was the case of Ivan Demyanyuk. He, when he was convicted, the uh, Germans started looking for anyone who had worked in a camp with a gas chamber or gas vans, or anyone who, who was in a camp with a very high mortality at the end of the war. So uh, there have been seven trials already. Only one of them was stopped because of health reasons, uh, and all the others were convicted, starting with Emmanuel. He He became the president. And then there was Oscar Groning, the accountant of Auschwitz, Reinhold Henning, who was a guard in Auschwitz, Bruno Day, a guard in Stutthof, Joseph Schutz, a guard in Sachsenhausen, and now, uh, Emgard Fuschner, who was the secretary of the commandant, Werner, uh, Paul Werner Hoffer, H- Hopper, who by the way, was put on trial in Germany and sat in jail nine years for accessory to murder, many years ago, 57 to 66.
1: That's crazy. So, as we enter the final phase of this interview, I always like to ask one fun question. And that is when you aren't hunting Nazi war criminals all over <laughs> the world, what do you do? What do you like to do for fun? How do you how do you unwind and relax?
2: Okay, so first of all, as I did last night, I went to see my favorite basketball team, Apollo Jerusalem, who unfortunately lost to the arrivals of Apollo Tel Aviv. Got very upset. Uh, so basketball. Sports. Uh, I'm very passionate about basketball. I played in high school. I played in college, uh, not with any great success, I would say. But I played. I was on the varsity. But I've always followed basketball, both in Israel and and in the NBA. And that is one of the things that gets my mind off it. Very passionate also about Jewish history, things like this, and try to learn more more about it, understand it and try and make the world a better place. (laughs) So, and I have uh, four kids and 15 grandchildren. Wow. So they also keep me busy. (laughs) So what's next for you? Okay, so I'm working very hard on this Holocaust distortion business and doing whatever I can to fight against the lies of these countries. And I would say to you, there are four aims. Number one is to hide or minimize the role that their nationals played in collaboration with Nazi Germany. And you have to remember that in the Holocaust of bullets, the units that the Nazis sent to carry out this mass murder operation numbered only a few thousand men. And they had to cover an area from Tallinn, Estonia, in the north, all the way down to Odessa, the Black Sea. It's a front of 1,500 kilometers. The method, and this is how the Holocaust began, was not gas chambers. The method was shooting. So how could so many people, so few people, excuse me, murder a million and a half Jews in less than two years? They had help. That's how. And those helpers were the major participants in the mass murder of the Jews. What's happening here is a travesty of justice, a falsification of history. So they, they, these countries want to hide their role. That's number one. Number two, some of their heroes... OK, these are new countries, new democracies. They need heroes. Who are their heroes? The people who fought against the Soviets. It makes sense. That's legitimate. No problem. I have no problem with that. But what happens if they're Nazi collaborators? What happens if they murdered innocent Jews, their own neighbors, fellow citizens? OK, and that's a big that's a very important point. In Lithuania and Latvia, Croatia, places like this, their heroes are were fascists were nationalists, ultra-nationalists, who in many uh, cases were key participants in the mass murder of innocent victims. Now, there's two other things. One is that they want, they're claiming that the communist crimes are just as bad as Nazi crimes, and communist crimes must be categorized as genocide. But communist crimes, as terrible as they were, were not genocide. There's no case to totally destroy a single people. Even in this Holodomor, which was basically a famine organized by Stalin to get people off the, their small farms, into collective farms, was a, a campaign against a, a, a group, an economic group. Ukrainians were the biggest victims, but Belarusians were victimized, Jews were victimized, other people were victimized by this. Now, but it's important for them that the communist crimes be called genocide, because if that's the case, There were some Jews who committed genocide during the Russian occupation from June 1940 till June 41 of places in Eastern Europe. In other words, if Jews committed genocide, how can we complain about their people who committed genocide? If everybody's guilty, nobody's guilty, right? And last point, they're pushing for a joint Memorial Day for all the victims of totalitarian regimes, communism and Nazism. And if that's the case, what do you need International Holocaust Day for? So this is a very serious threat, and uh, we're doing what we can to delegitimize them, as we should, to explain to the public that their version of the events is is simply falsified.
1: If people want to be interested in following what you've got going on right now, what would be the best way for them to find you online or follow your
2: work? Okay, so first of all, the Simon Wiesenthal Center has a very good website, uh, wiesenthal.com. They can follow me on Twitter, for example, at capital E, capital Z U R O F F. Okay, I'm on Twitter, I have more than 10,000 followers, and I'm always happy to have more followers. (laughs) They can follow me on Facebook. And you can follow me at our office's uh, website, which is swcjerusalem.org. Hmm. So we also, I also write quite a few op-eds, try and plead on behalf of this cause, the causes, I should say, pr- prosecution of Nazis and the fight against Holocaust distortion, and try and combat the lies, the falsifications. I mean, it's so, it's so painful. I mean, it's such a, a disgrace and a, and a affront to the memory of the victims, I mean, these countries are doing it for political reasons. Look at what's going on in Ukraine. In Ukraine, both sides are lying through their teeth. In other words, Putin on February 24th, before the invasion said, we're going to invade Ukraine to denazify the country. Is Ukraine a Nazi country? Of course not. It's a democracy, maybe a flawed democracy, but a democracy, okay, on the one hand. Then in Ukraine, when the Russians attacked Bocha, they said, this is the Holocaust of the 21st century. Four streets in the Warsaw Ghetto were more, had more victims than all of Bocha. And I mean, they're not trying to kill every single Ukrainian. It's absurd. But people, in a sense, you know, this is like the silver lining of our success. We've succeeded in convincing the public that the Holocaust is the worst tragedy in human history, which it is. That's true. But other people want to latch on to the Holocaust. In other words, to claim that they're like the Holocaust. To get support, to get uh, you know uh, funds to, for their causes, etc. Whether it's PETA or other or other or countries, etc. So, so this is what we're up against. It's the price of success in a certain sense.
1: Based on what you do and the importance of your work, I feel like you may have one of the best answers for this next question. Because I end my interviews with my favorite question, and the question is this: If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, or be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth.
2: What I'd like to say is that it's incredibly important to study the Holocaust, to learn its lessons, and make sure that something like this will never, ever recur again. Hmm.
1: Sir, thank you for taking the time out of your absolutely, incredibly busy schedule. This has been a real honor for me. And again, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to reach all the many listeners that you have.
1: And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 122. I want to thank Dr. Zuroff for taking the time to come on the show. The horrors of the Holocaust still causes ripples even after nearly 80 years. And the race against time to continue to bring those responsible in the Third Reich to justice is more important now than ever. But I do want to thank Dr. Zerf again for being so gracious with his time. The opportunity to speak with him is going to be something that I'm going to remember for a very, very long time. Tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. Uh, in a few days, we will be Groundhog Day here in 2022, and I have a very special guest who will be joining us. So be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed today's episode? I truly hope you have. So if you have, please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us. Uh, we are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have selected T-shirts. We want it on our store. We have everything from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Pride shirts, Norm McDonald, and so much more. So go to our website, DerekDevallShow.com, go on the banner on the left that says Merch, click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Public. And we want to thank Public again for being such great partners with us. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek DeVall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, please pick up a history book or watch a documentary and learn about the horrors of the Holocaust. For a society who does not learn from history, are almost condemned to repeat it, and we must never let fascism of any kind stand. star God bless, and see you
0: next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show